You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, we're going to be concluding the series of the inner world of addiction with the ninth class of the inner world of addiction, which is going to be titled The Possibility of Joy. Now, before we enter into the sugya of the possibility of joy or the possibility or the afshariyut of happiness in this world, there's a couple of introductions that I want to make with regards to this series in particular. By no means is this the culmination of what we can speak about when it comes to the world of addiction, when it comes to the world of potential addiction, which as we've tried to make clear in the series of classes, is not simply relegated to particular individuals who fall underneath the line of normalcy into pathological behavior, but rather each and every person, quo human being, is on a certain level already found within the realm of the potential towards addiction. That on a certain aspect, according to a certain bechina of the human experience, as Rabbi Nachman would phrase it, becoming addicted to some sort of substance, whether it be mind-altering or whether it simply be attitude-altering, is one of the most normal things that a person can do when they confront the intensity and the ferocious nature of this worldliness. That certain neshamos, certain souls that find themselves thrown into the realm of experience, whereby their sensitivities are intensified, and the things that they see break their heart more than they break the heart of other individuals, it's quite reasonable for a person to try and find some sort of an escape, some sort of substantiality that stands outside of this worldliness. But what we've been discussing since the beginning of these classes is that just as we find within the condition of addiction or the condition of the potential towards addiction, all of the manifold hazards and dangers that a person can fall into until they fall into despair or the abject experience of addiction, so too within that same conditionality, within the same ingredients, within the same building blocks of the condition of addiction, we also find and uncover the possibility of recovery because it's specifically with the same energy, specifically with the same experience that the addict or the potential addict has the ability to draw deeper into their experience, thereby entering into the deeper parts of themselves, those scary, darker parts of themselves. But when a person emerges afterwards, not only have they escaped the clutches of the darkness and the shadow side of their lives and the shadow side of reality, but they come out with a greater strength because they have now elevated out of darkness and shown that there's light there as well. And in this sense, the addiction shirim have been a continuation of the series of shirim on the Leshem Shmobachaloma, which were a continuation of shirim on the Sefer of Reish Milin from Rav Kook. The entire purpose of these classes is to drive home the simple point that in order to show the 
deepest aspect of infinitude and God's greatness in this world, we must enter into the realms of darkness to show that even within darkness, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light abides. That even in the darkness of our experiences, in the ontological darkness of Mitzios or the worlds as described in the series on the Leshem, or the darkness of the Seder HaHashdalshalus, the emanatory process through which HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, each of us is tasked with the purpose of descending into limitation, descending into darkness, descending into concealment to the point that it manifests in each and every one of our particular lives according to our particular heart at the particular moment, each and every one of us is tasked with descending into that dangerous area, elevating afterwards, thereby showing that even darkness and limitation does not stand the chance when exposed to the light of infinitude. So when discussing these ideas, we can continue this series of classes with the inner world of addiction for another 10 years if we would like to, because the conditionality of addiction is really no different than the conditionality of what it means to be a nivra, what it means to be a creature, what it means to be imperfect. But for the sake of brevity and for the sake of being able to continue in some systematic fashion, we're going to end the series here and we're going to relegate these nine shirim that we had given so far to the themes of addiction, but it's a theme that I hope to return to and that hope to write about as well and to cultivate some of the ideas discussed in these classes to try and open up vistas of recovery that have hitherto been undisclosed. Second of all, anything that I have said about addiction or the potential towards addiction is said with the humility that recognizes that there is no expertise when it comes to the human condition. Anything that I'm describing, anything that I've attempted to describe in these series of classes has been my own experience, has been through the lens of my own heart, the way that my heart translates the sources that we've been working with through my own individual and particular experience. Now, if the ideas herein speak to other individuals, then that's an incredible schus, that's an incredible merit for me, but by no means am I claiming any realm of authority or any realm of absolute knowledge when it comes to the world of addiction, because as we're going to see, addiction, in spite of all of the information, whether neurobiological, psychological, psychoanalytic, psychiatric, medical, moral, ethical, sociological, hermeneutical, existential, whatever realm of understanding a person uses to approach the conditionality of addiction, which at this point in history is raging in a way that it has not raged previously, must understand that everything is simply a hava amina. We are still in the realm of postulations and observations that do not hold a candle to the condition of addiction. That addiction continues to rage and addiction continues to destroy and swallow up individuals who by no means mean to fall into this experience, but they find themselves caught within the thicket of addiction or the potential towards addiction. So by no means are these classes meant to be authoritative in the sense that this is a mahalach, this is a derech of elevating out of addiction, but rather they are one individual's readings of particular texts within the Jewish mystical and Hasidic tradition that attempt to shine light on this conditionality. But as we're going to see, the only answer to addiction. The only potential answer to addiction or the potential of addiction is one that takes into consideration the fact that the answer is still only a hava amina. That as we're going to see that if we want to say anything significant about human condition, about what it means to be a mensch in this world, what it means to be a person who comes from a lofty space of tohu, who comes from a place where we've tasted a light that's much greater than what this world can offer, what it means to be a Talmud of Beishamai, 
what it means to come from the neshamas of Kayin, what it means to be the neshama of the Balchuva that has the capacity to disclose within their fallen experience a deeper level of spirituality than even the truly righteous has the capacity to express. It's only because these neshamos, these individuals understand that the answers that we give or the attempts at codifying and creating systems of logic that we attempt to give in order to understand the world around us is always with the deep knowledge that this is only the beginning of the answer. That even when we come to the end, when we come to the culmination of what we've been trying to say about addiction, we recognize deeply within the recesses of the soul that what we have said so far is only the beginning of what needs to be said. And on a certain level, this apophatic silence, this inability to fully express that which needs to be expressed is part and parcel of what it means to be in the mode of recovery. Because as we're going to see, for the possibility of joy to find itself within the world of the addict or the potential addict, it comes with the humility that recognizes that in spite of the fact that I am not perfect, and in spite of the fact that I cannot say all that I would like to say, and in spite of the fact that my desires are not fulfilled, Nevertheless, specifically because I'm left hungry and desiring, I have the capacity to find a semblance or a piece of happiness and joy in this world. That it's specifically in the non-finished, unfinished aspect of recovery, which lends itself to the sense that there is so much more that must be said but can still not be said because we don't have the kalim or the words to describe what needs to be said. It's specifically because we become okay with that that we have the possibility of entering into a space of recovery. Now, with that being said, what we're going to try and talk about tonight just a little bit is the question of, after going through eight classes about the conditions of what it means to be an addict or a potential addict, what, what it means to be a soul or a personality that finds itself trying so desperately to the point of abject experience, to the point of crisis, to find some mode of artificial substantiality in this world, specifically because the world in its externality does not provide us the substantiality that we would like, because without the artificial substances, without the attitudes or the behaviors or the substances that we find ourselves stuck in, we feel ourselves floating in an anxiety cloud that is dissatisfied with this world. So in order to try and understand how an individual who, after all of the shirim that we've been discussing, feels the lack and comes from a place of brokenheartedness and is rooted in a place of shattering and catastrophe of the shira takelim and finds themselves embittered because of their experience with time, how is it possible that a neshama like this, how is it possible that a soul like this can wrestle even a semblance of joy from the world? If we've just spent so much time talking about the bitterness or the merirut or the harshness of what it means to be an addict or a potential addict or a neshama who the concepts of addiction or the potential towards addiction speak to, how is it possible that we can pretend to try and wrestle or garner a certain sense of joy and satisfaction from this world? And what I would like to try and posit tonight is that it's specifically out of this condition it's specifically out of the darkness of our experiences and the darkness that we see abiding within the world around us that we have even a possibility of joy. And what I would like to start off with is a story from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who has been amused throughout these sources, 
and without the and throughout the shirim that even when we're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous or the Soid Yesharim or the Meshiloach or the Vilnagon or any other tzaddikim, it's always going to be seen through a realm of the hermeneutical spirituality that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov brought down into the world that attempts to find spirituality and godliness not in the lofty spaces of transcendence, but specifically within the scattered and broken apart traumatic shards of what it means to be a spiritual subject in the modern or postmodern era. So everything that we've been talking about has been touched or shaded by the concepts that Rabbi Nachman of Breslev and his students, Rabbi Nassim of Nimerov, brought into the world. But tonight we're going to show explicitly that really the entirety of these classes have been a reading of the opening, an enigmatic opening of one of Rabbi Nachman's stories. Now famously, and I think as we've discussed at least in this year or the Leshem Shirim, at the end of Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlov's life, he decided that his teachings and his intellectual ideas about spirituality, mysticism, Hasidus, or even homiletical interpretations of texts was no longer speaking to the souls of his Hasidim the way he wanted them to speak. And he found himself overwhelmed and almost losing hope in his ability to transform the, the hearts of stone that his Hasidim had into the hearts of flesh, which he was seeking to create within them. And so Rabbi Nachman tells, and he explains this very clearly in the 60th teaching of Lakutim Haran Chilak Aleph, this process of shifting the hermeneutical emphasis from Torahs into stories, or ideas into stories and narrative, Rabbi Nachman opens up with these 13 tales of ancient days. Ancient days, which means to say that it reaches the deepest part of the individual. These tales speak to the most ancient part of the individual, the most subconscious, unconscious fears and hopes that we all have that we're not even aware that we have until we read them in Rabbi Nachman. One of the most beautiful things about learning Rabbi Nachman's stories is that when you read them, even the bare narrative of them, instead of trying to interpret the sim symbolism or the mystical interpretation of them, what you find, and the only other book that does this is really the Book of Splendor, the Sefer HaZohar, when read properly, it awakens within the person certain anxieties and certain hopes and, and confidences that they never had access to before you're not quite capable of putting your finger on exactly what you're feeling, but when you learn the Sipuri Maisios Meshanim Kanmoniot, the 13 tales of ancient days that Rabbi Nachman brought down into this world, a person finds themselves comforted and bewildered at once. And we're not quite sure why we're bewildered or why we're comforted, but it's simply within the text and the power invested within the text that awakens these conditions within us. Now, in potentially the most famous of all of the 13 tales of Rabbi Nachman, is going to be the last tale, the Maisi Yud Gimel Mesefer Sipuri Maisios. And here we're using Rav Tzvi Mark's, Rav, Rav Tzvi Mark's um, edition of the of Kol Sipuri um, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. So Rabbi Nachman here is telling a strange tale, a strange legend of two orphans, two lost children, who after a ball that a king had thrown, after a celebration that a king had thrown, had found themselves lost in a forest. Now again, the forest is not simply a forest, but it's what rep represents the deepest and most primal anxieties of ourselves. That harrowing darkness that drives us to find substantiality outside of ourselves because this world is sometimes too frightening. And specifically in this forest, specifically in this Ya'ar Hagadol, these two individuals get lost, a young child and a young, and a young boy and a young girl, ages four and five. And they find themselves lost and bewildered, having no idea how to continue. And in their destitution, 
in their brokenness, in their lostness, in their being orphans from everything that they had known, they encounter seven beggars, seven enigmatic, almost mystical creatures that arrive in the forest offering them gifts, offering them insight. It's a blind beggar, it's a deaf beggar, it's a stuttering beggar, it's a mute beggar, it's a hunchback beggar, it's a crooked neck beggar, beggar, it's an armless beggar and it's a legless beggar. And these orphans learn how to function in the darkness of this forest. These orphans learn how to function in the loss of their certitude. Having lost their parents, having lost everything that they had known previously, finding themselves in the postmodern condition where truths no longer remain truths where the things that provided substance for me in my life are no longer providing that substantiality that I need to the extent that I'm forced to seek out alien wells to bring myself some sort of comfort to the point that I become stuck in it, we have these enigmatic beggars who come and provide us with insight. And these young children become beggars of their own and they become the chief of the beggars. And eventually the group, the trope that they're traveling with of beggars decide that these two children should get married. And how did these two children get married? How did these two orphan children who had learned how to live life, who learned how to function in a world that has lost meaning, they find themselves being married in a pit dug by the beggars, 20 feet deep, in the darkness of a pit covered by the shade of the walls of mud. And this pit is covered by twigs and branches and garbage and zevel. And it fit 100 people and all the beggars join them and they get married there, Vahaya Simcha Gedola. So the story of the seven beggars is the story of how do we find simcha? How do we find the ability to draw strength from this world if we're lost, if we're in a forest, if we're orphaned, if we're seeking out substantiality from alien sources, if we're addicted, if we're sad, if we're anxious, if we're depressed, if we're broken, if we've fallen, if we've sinned and we've transgressed and we feel spit out and pushed away from divinity, from godliness, from any sense of hope in ourselves. How is it that in the space of shame and self-shame and the loss of hope that we experience in 2019, when a person looks at the news and a person looks at the current events of the world and they feel more and more embarrassed to be a member of the world in 2019? How is it that after the traumatic cataclysm that the Jewish people had experienced and that the world had experienced in our generation, how is it possible that we can find hope? How is it possible to find joy in the forest, in the orphaned forest that we find ourselves in? And Rabbi Nachman comes to tell us that it's specifically here in the pit of the mud, covered by mud, covered by twigs, covered by garbage, that the individual has the potential to find simcha, to have a chasana, to have a marriage, to find connectivity, to find sustenance in that which is in front of them, to live life on life's terms as we're going to see at the end of this class. And the way that Rabbi Nachman opens up the story, Maisa Meshiva Batlarim, the story of the seven beggars, the, the seven kabtsanim, is an incredible proof text to this. Because before Rabbi Nachman told his stories, Rabbi Nassim would come to him and read something from current events, and that would trigger, that would open up for Rabbi Nachman the tale of ancient days that he was going to say. And here in this story, on the first day, Rabbi Nachman started telling the stories that took seven days to finish. Well, not really finish as we're going to see because Rabbi Nachman never finished the story. And the fact that it's not finished is in and of itself the secret of its being finished. Because if we want to find any sustenance and any redemptive qualities in this world, it must be armed hand in hand with the sense that we can never quite truly finish anything and that it's our job to simply begin things. Rabbi Nachman says as follows, I'm going to tell you about how once upon a time people were happy. Once upon a time people were happy. 
and Rav Avram Chazan ben Rabbi Nachman Metolchen, one of the primary teachers of Rabbi Nachman's derech, a grand Talmud of Rabbi Nassim, whose Sefer Bir Halikutim is one of the only ways to properly learn Sefer Likutim Aran, says as follows. He has a different girsa. That when Rabbi Nachman wanted to open up this story, he doesn't say that, that I'm going to tell you how they were once happy. But he says, I'm going to tell you a tale of how people used to find joy, people used to be happy from within the bitterness of the spirit itself, from within depression, from within the tzabrachin kite, from within that brokenness that we saw from the Mitla Rebbe is, uh, is a fundamental characteristic of a person who has the capacity to understand the secrets of Torah. That ein yachol like the Mitla Rebbe says in the beginning of Kuntrash's palace and Rav Hillel Parachus echoes as well in the name of the Balatanya in the name of the Magad of Mezrich. That it's specifically from within the Marashchayra that we have the ability to draw joy. And Rabbi Nachman is telling us that you want to understand how to find happiness in the world? You want to understand how a person can be satisfied in this world in spite of all of the myriad difficulties that we've expressed until now? It's specifically the individual who's willing to descend into the Marish Chayra, the person who's willing to look at fearlessly and make a moral inventory of their tzibrachenkeit and their brokenness, specifically someone who's willing to gaze at the world face-to-face without turning away because of how horrific it looks, it's specifically that individual who's going to have the capacity to find joy. It's specifically from within the Marashchaira itself, from within the conditionality of what it means to be a nishbar individual, a broken individual. An individual comes from the, the world of tohu like Rav Kook taught us, the neshamos of tohu that are rooted in a much loftier place than the neshamos of tikkun. Or like we saw in the name of Rabbi Lazar ben Durdai, the neshamos of the Balchuva who has the ability to draw down spirituality higher than even the Tzadik Amor. It's the students of Shammai and the descendants of Kayan, those individuals who feel the severity of the world, who are more sensitive to the world. It's specifically them who are going to be able to access happiness. How do we find Simcha when we're buried within a pit and forced to get married within the pit itself? Now, <clears throat> What I want to read to you right now is actually a short story that I encountered this week, which has me deeply excited, which are the 68 stories of Rav Usher Freund, an enigmatic tzaddik who I'm simply beginning to understand the process of his works, but someone who I would be deeply surprised if he didn't have access to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, at least in a Hebrew translation, because what I've read thus far from Rav Asher Foyn, is so on point with regards to what I've been trying to say about addiction that it's almost overwhelming. Now, what I want to read to you here is the 32nd of his stories in the 68 stories that Rav Asher Freund wrote. And these stories are such a remarkable gift because they're almost like Rabbi Nachman's stories, but they're more like Kafka stories. They're Kafka stories that create, a, create an environment of meaninglessness, of chaos, of non-knowledge, of doubt. Yet in spite of the unfinished nature of these stories, in spite of the anticlimactic end of these stories, we also find a certain vestige of hope that animates these stories. And Rav Asher Freund writes as follows in the 32nd story of his 68 stories. Maisa Shaya Echad Sameach. It's the tale of an individual who was once happy. 
And it was a novelty in the world. It was a wonder in the world. How could it be that there was a person who was happy? Vigam Tamihos. And it also created wonderment and questions and confusion. How in truth is it possible at all for a person to be happy? For each individual, according to their own personal heart, according to their own personal psyche and experience, is created with their lack and their pain. Like the entirety of existence as it is known. How is it possible that this person would actually be happy? The Amar, and the answer according to Ravasher Freund in this narrative, And that's how the story ends. How am I happy? How am I capable of finding happiness in this world? How am I capable of finding comfort after this entire process of descending into the pits of the potential towards addiction that show me the bitterness of the world and the brokenheartedness of the world and the hopelessness of the world? How is it possible that I can find joy? How is it possible that I can find recovery? Because the entire secret of happiness, the entire secret of the potential to joy is contained within these four words of Rav Asher Foyn. The way that I find happiness is that I take my somethingness, I take my egocentricity, I take my sense that I am the only thing that matters in the world and that my feelings are the only thing that matters in the world and that my assumptions are the only things that matter in the world and that the way that I look at the world are absolute truths and the sense of self-certainty that I walk around with and the sense of ani hagever, I am the individual. All of those things, when they're mahapich la'ayin, when I'm able to bring humility into them, when I'm able to laugh at myself, when I'm able to say that all of the things that I thought I knew about this world are in truth only hypotheses, only the beginning of knowledge that are leading me to a place of coming to the true recognition that at the end of the day, I am entirely powerless over everything. That's the place that I find joy. Only when I recognize that all of the power that I think I have all of the control that I think I have about my conditions of being alive, about the people, places, and things that I encounter on a daily basis, about my thoughts, about my emotions, about my actions. It's only when I recognize that if not for you, God, if not for you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I would be nothing of nothing. I wouldn't exist for even a second. That only when I relinquish my control, only when I have the capacity to recognize that not only am I powerless over my drug of choice or my behavior of choice, but I'm powerless over everything in my life. That I am simply a kli, that I am simply an empty vessel, a lace de magar meklum, something that has nothing of its own in the hands of its creator. It's only then that I have the capacity of finding some semblance of joy in the world. Because as long as I am convinced that ani hagever, as long as I am convinced that I have some self-control or control over my circumstances or my experiences in this world, I become resentful because I want things to go one way and the truth is that they go the other way. Or I want things to go that way and they went the other way. Or I want that person to speak to me this way and in truth they spoke to me that way. Or when I come home I want this to happen and that happens. If I'm living with the sense that I am in charge, that I am a yesh, that I am a something, then simcha is impossible because I will be filled with resentments and frustrations and disappointments because the appointments that I thought I had set for myself are not met. 
But when I relinquish my control and I recognize that I'm bitl bimitsius or bitl biatius, that in truth, every animating aspect of my existence comes directly from Ein Sofiut, from the infinitude of godliness in the world, then whatever happens in my life, I'm willing to accept and say, thus is thus, this is this. This is the reality of my circumstances. This is how I need to confront this moment in my life. That whatever is in front of me through mindful attention becomes a nisayon, becomes the potential for me to find more Yerushamayim, more Ahavas Hashem, more Yishav Hadas. It's only when I relinquish my control. It's only when I recognize that there are things that I can control and things that I can't control. And that I pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give me the wisdom to know the difference between the two. To ask God for the serenity to help me understand the fact that at the end of the day, there's really nothing that I control. That's where Simcha is going to come from. Because when we look at Chazal, when we look at the statement of Chazal when trying to codify or express the specificity of what it means to be a person who is besimcha, what it means to, pers- to be a person who is joyous, the statement is as follows, Ezehu ashir ha-sameach b'chalko. Who is going to be considered a rich individual, a wealthy individual? Somebody who is satisfied and happy with their lot. Now, Ashiris here, according to most of the Mephorshim, certainly does not mean monetary wealth or capitalistic gains. Ashiris means a sense of osher. It means a sense of fullness. It means a sense of being okay. It means a sense of being satisfied in this world and okay with what I see in the world. Where does that osher come from? Where does that Ashiris come from? Asameach Bechelko, being happy with my lot. Now here the Maharal of Prague becomes incredibly specific because Simcha for the Maharal of Prague, any sense of happiness for the Maharal of Prague is going to be synonymous with a sense of Shlemus, with a sense of being whole, with a sense of perfection, with a sense that I have done everything that in my power I can do and I have everything I need to have. So on the one hand, simcha represents a fullness and a satisfaction that the mensch can experience. On the other hand, it's a sameach b'chelko. A chelak means simply a part. Chelak is the opposite of a whole. A part is the antithesis of a whole. A part means that there is not the entire picture here. It means that it's a broken shard from some primordial trauma that has created these broken sparks that each piece is not a part of the whole. So how could it be that for the Maharal, simcha on the one hand, which means fullness, and chilek, which means lack, how could the two unite with one another to the point that we say, Ezehu ashir And like we quoted from the Orachayim HaKadosh in the second shir in the series, the answer is that the simcha, the sense of shlameless and fullness that a person can experience in this world, is only when we come to recognize that at best all we can have is a chilek that when it comes to trying to take an accounting for our lives and the control that we have over ourselves, and our ability to do that which we want to do on the ideal level, it's only when we recognize that we are imperfect. It's only when we recognize that we are but a chilek, we are but a part of a whole that we can never truly grasp. It's only there that we have the ability to access simcha. So wholeness is paradoxically only disclosed once a person accepts their inability to reach wholeness. Comfort is only disclosed when a person recognizes that at best I can only remove myself from discomfort in this world. That the sense of happiness and hope and satisfaction that I have is only when I recognize my own powerlessness. 
It's only when I recognize that I am an I and that I am a nothing and that any action that I do is rooted in infinitude and not based on my own volitional activity. It's only when I allow myself to see godliness in my life, to see the breath of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in every breath of mine, as Rav Asher Freund would say, to see the neshama in each and every neshima, to see the soul in every breath, it's only then that I have the capacity of accessing some sort of joy. Rav Kuk's Chusiyaganalenu, commenting on the statement of Hillel of Ezehu Ashira Sameach Bechalko, writes in Einaya on Meseches Brachos, on his commentary on the Agarata, which was one of the earlier svarim that he wrote. He writes as follows He says, Ezehu Ashira Sameach Bechalko, Ezehu Ashira, who is a person who's going to be truly rich in their lives, truly satisfied? somebody who truly has the capacity to sit assuredly in that moment and say that I have done what I need to do and there's nothing else that I can do and I must accept my conditionality of being a human being. It's somebody who recognizes that the only simcha that we'll get is a simcha chelkis. Ezehu ashira sameach bechelko. Sameach bechelko means that it's a partial happiness. That somebody who is seeking absolute happiness, somebody who is seeking out some hedonic sense of joyful pleasure of the flesh in this world will always be dissatisfied, will always be left feeling that there's some substance outside of me that can bring comfort. It's only when I gaze into my imperfection, when I gaze into the deep truth that as a human being I am imperfect, and that is specifically where I am meant to serve God and where I am meant to live as a human being and experience this worldliness, it's specifically there in the hakar of simcha chelkis, of a partial happiness, that in spite of all of my greatest efforts, I can never come to a wholeness of happiness. Not because I'm lacking the conditions that determine happiness, but because even when I have all the conditions of what it means to be happy, it's still only going to be a simcha chalkis. It's still only going to be a partial happiness. Because human experience is not only joy, human experience is the composite of brokenness and fixedness, of light and darkness, of sadness and happiness. And it's specifically Rabbi Nachman who came to teach us this. Rabbi Nachman came to understand that you want to be happy, it's usher to be sad, that mitzvah gedola lios besimcha tamid, Rabbi Nachman, the spokesperson of simcha, it's only when we recognize that simcha is only possible when we take into consideration the fact that there's so much fighting against simcha, that there are so many aspects of this world and our lives and our historical situatedness, and our personal circumstances that fight against simcha, that tell us to be anything but happy. It's specifically when we confront those conditions and we're mahapich them from something to nothing, from yesh to ayin, that we have the possibility of finding simcha, like Rabbi Nachman said, in that pit, in the marriage of the lost, where the orphans find joy. Rabbi Nachman says this most clearly in the 23rd teaching in the second volume of Likute Maharan. Rabbi Nachman says as follows, you want to try and understand simcha? You want to try and understand what it means to be a happy individual? He says, imagine a circle of individuals dancing. Everybody is overcome with the experience and the emotions of that moment, and they find themselves dancing with abandonment, where they're no longer thinking about the anxieties of day-to-day life, they're not thinking about their resentments or their wrongdoings, but they allow themselves to abandon the flow of the natural order of things for a moment and be joyous. Now, there's always an individual, says Rabbi Nachman, who stands outside of the circle. 
There's that one individual who looks at the people dancing and with the skeptic eye says, how dare these people forget for a moment how broken things are? How dare they dance? How dare they pretend that the pain of the world doesn't exist? How dare they pretend that they're joyous without substances outside of themselves? Ibn Ibn Ahmed says that it's not enough for the circle of joyous individuals dancing to ignore that skeptic on the side, that depressive individual on the side, but rather true simcha is specifically when we take that individual on the side, where we take that marash khaira, where we take that brokenness, where we take all of those things in our lives that are telling us not to be happy where we take all the reasons in the world, the million and one reasons why not to find joy in the world. We take them and we force them into the circle. It's not enough to ignore unhappiness. It's not enough to ignore the brokenness of our lives. It's not enough to ignore how deeply broken reality is, how reality is constructed specifically in the after effects of a primordial trauma of the Shvira Sakhalin. It's not enough to ignore it and to be mechape, like the Balatani would say, and to subdue it, and to suppress it or repress it, but rather what we must do in order to disclose the true depths of joy is to force the unhappiness, balkorcho, against its will, into the circle of happiness, to take brokenness, to take the, the deep pit of the mud that the orphans find themselves in, to take the anxiety and the tzabrachenkeit of what it means to be a mensch in 2019, and to force it into the circle, to say, afal pikein, even though everything you see in the world tells you to be unhappy, we're choosing to be happy. That happiness is not something that a person falls into, but happiness is something that a person chooses. That only when I recognize how antiethical to my experience in this world happiness is, do I have the ability to choose happiness, to be bocher to be happy, to force my unhappiness into the circle and to act as if. Acting as if, which is a line that people speak of very often in the rooms of 12 Steps and Alcoholics Anonymous and any anonymous groups, there's a statement called fake it until you make it. And one way of interpreting this statement is that you must be inauthentic. You must begin with the wrong intentions. And eventually, if you work with the wrong intentions, then eventually you'll come to find the proper intentions of, of what you're doing. But in truth, there's a deeper way to understand the statement. Fake it until you make it. When we talk shalolishma balishma, doesn't mean that it's a sequential order of in the beginning I'm not doing things properly and eventually I'll arrive at doing things properly. But it's the realization that there's no difference between doing things for the wrong reason and doing things for the right reason, or doing things inauthentically and doing things authentically. If I can force myself to pretend that I'm besimcha in this world, to pretend that I'm satisfied, to find satisfaction in my chilek, in my imperfection, to find perfection specifically in my imperfection, it's specifically there that I'm going to realize that there's no difference between faking it and making it. That faking it and making it are two, are two ways of looking at the same experience. Like the tzaddikim say, like Rav Matil Zilber brings down so often, Rav Matil Zilber Shlita, the Stachina Rebbe, the tzaddik of Stachin, says so often that doesn't mean that from inauthenticity I'll come to authenticity, but it means deep within the heart of inauthenticity, deeply embedded within inauthentic behavior, rests the kernel of authenticity that if I begin to pretend that I'm joyous in this world, if I pretend to begin 
to feel that this world offers me enough, even spite of the fact that I come from a place of light, from tohu, that doesn't provide, that the world can't provide, it's there that I'll be able to find lishma. It's there that I'll come to find that I've been authentic all along. That it's specifically in our choice to be sameach, in our choice to be happy, in our choice to find comfort with what we have, to live life on life's terms, to find simcha mitoycha marishchaira, to take the brokenness of marishchaira and draw it into our experience, it's specifically there that I'm going to find joy in my life. The Pasuk in Tehillim says, Samcheinu kiyamais anisanu shnoisar inura, gladden us or make us joy like the days that we suffered, like the days that we saw negativity. Rav Moshe Chaim Letzatos, the Ramchal, one of the biggest tzaddikim that we've experienced in our history of the people, speaks so often about this verse to say that it's specifically when I'm able to recognize that even in my unhappiness, even in my brokenness, even in my anisanu, even in my suffering, that's where my joy was found. I was as happy then as I am now. That it's specifically in my tzibrachan, kind of my brokenness, in the marashchaira, in the orphans in the woods, that I'm able to recognize that there's no difference between what makes me happy and what makes me unhappy other than my mentality, other than my das, other than my ability to choose to be happy. That's the secret of joy. The secret of joy, it's that specifically in my recognition that I am lacking as a human being and that the world is lacking as an environment and that spirituality is lacking and that I'm so deeply desiring substantiality outside of myself when I come to terms with that when I'm willing to accept my imperfection, when I'm willing to accept the fact that I am not God, that I am imperfect, that that God's holiness will always inevitably be larger and more transcendent than human Kedusha, so that no matter how lofty I reach on the ladder of spirituality, I will always be wanting and I will always be desiring and I will always be lacking. And it's specifically in that lack that I find my Kedusha it's only there that I have the ability to find Yishavadas and happiness. Rav Tzadok HaKohen expresses this better than anybody that I've ever seen. This is, to this day, one of the most significant teachings that I have ever read. This is in Rav Tzadok HaKohen Milublin, Lukutima Amaram in Indian Shimshon, and it's going to be the 22nd point and the 23rd point on page 165 and 166. And I'm going to read these words out loud because if Rav Tzadok had not written them, we would not have the rishus, the permission to say them. Rav Tzadok says as follows, Tzimtzum and constriction and gvura and severity, which create the conditionality of potential addiction or addiction, all it comes to do is limit things, to create measurements, to say adkan tavo, don't move further than this. But Simpson has nothing to do when there's nothing there because it comes to limit something. And if there's nothing there, there's nothing to limit. So then what is Simpson coming to limit? Because originally in our experience, originally before Shvira Sakhalim, there was light and then it shattered in that traumatic cataclysm of Ashura Sakhalim, kol makom shiyesh or nishar rishima mimenu kiyadua. Any time that light 
registers within any aspect of a person's life, in spite of the fact that that light leaves, it's still present. So the neshama of the addict, the neshama of the Balchuva, the neshama of the souls of Kayan, the neshama of the students of Shammai, comes from a place of Shvira Sakein, like we saw from Avkuk. Comes from a place where there's too much that this world cannot even offer what we're seeking. Anytime light leaves something, anytime we've lost hope, because we tasted light once upon a time, it's still there. It leaves an irreducible trace that cannot be scrubbed away no matter what. Which means that no matter how hard I try and forget the sense of satisfaction and joy that I had in my life, it will still be there pushing me, animating my dreams, telling me that there is something deeper than my experience right now. There is something stronger than these artificial substances that I've been using. There's always going to be an irreducible trace that remains. Like Rashi brings down by Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er when Jacob leaves Be'er Shava, that the departure of a tzaddik from a town leaves a trace. What does that mean that it leaves a trace? Shenikr shechaser, that its absence is presence, that we're aware that something is lacking here. Had there never been a tzaddik, I would have no idea that something is lacking. Had I never tasted joy in this world, I would have no idea that things can be better. But because I tasted joy once upon a time before my soul descended into this world, I now know that there's something better than what I have here. There's something more than this world has to offer that I'm truly seeking. It's abundantly clear that something is lacking, and it's specifically in this lack that I find joy. Light over here means the recognition of godliness, the recognition of Hashem's presence in my life. In the conditionality of being an addict, in the conditionality of the potential towards addiction, specifically in these broken vessels, I have the ability to recognize HaKadosh Baruch Hu simply because He's not present in my life. By dint of the fact that I can't find satisfaction, that is what tells me that I'm seeking satisfaction. Because the fact that I'm seeking satisfaction, the fact that I want more than heroin, alcohol, methamphetamines, behaviors, fighting, negativity, whatever addictive attitude a person adapts in this world, because I'm trying to find satisfaction tells me that once upon a time I tasted satisfaction. And if I tasted satisfaction once upon a time, in spite of the fact that it's missing right now, it still remains a possibility for me. And that drives my hope of recapturing that sense of serenity that I tasted once upon a time. And Rav Sadok says that it's specifically in these broken vessels that I have the capacity of finding godliness. Specifically from the perspective of the fact that godliness and joy is not present at this moment in my life. For the addict or the potential addict, the question of how is it possible to find joy in this world, it's specifically because we're so unhappy. It's specifically when a neshama is mitmarmer, when it murmurs to itself, how in the world could it be that God creates a world that is so deeply imperfect that we disclose against our will that we believe deeply that the world should be perfect. And that perfection that we so deeply seek is our amuna that Hashem is present in our lives. And specifically there, specifically in the brokenness of ourselves, specifically in the sense that I want more than what this opportunity or what this world is offering me right now, that's where we find the belief that things can be better. 
And once I believe that things can be better, I can choose to make things better in this moment. Happiness or simcha, when a person looks at the sources in Kabbalistic literature and Hasidic literature, there's a profound paradox because happiness is rooted in a space of bina, in a space of understanding. The space of understanding is also a space of severity. It's also a space of judgment. It's also a space of din and constriction. And the secret is that it's specifically when we confront this space of constriction that we have the ability to find joy in our lives. The paradigm or the archetype of joy is Yitzchak Avinu. Yitzchak's name represents laughter, it represents joviality, it represents the ability to find comfort within the conditions of this worldliness, in spite of all of the brokenness. But it's Yitzchak specifically who's the paradigm of the archetype of harsh judgment, of din. That Yitzchak came to this world to say that things are harsh and things are broken and things don't always go your way. So how could it be that the individual comes to the world to teach us that, that, that things are imperfect and that things won't always go our way, how could it be that this is the individual who represents happiness as well? And the Chadusha Harim explains this in the most profound and paradoxical, almost comical way. He says as follows in Chadusha Harim ala Torah, Sarah, after having given up hope like we saw last week in the name of the Sod Yisharim, that Yitzchak was only born after losing hope, that the recovering individual can only find hope after losing hope because they realize that even within the loss of hope there abides an irreducible hope. So after Sarah has lost hope in having a child, Hashem grants her with a child and she says, I'm going to name him Yitzchak because the name of God that represents harsh judgments and negativity has made a comedy for me, has helped me laugh. Upela hadavar says the Chidush how do we find Yitzchak being associated with joy and laughter? What's funny about Yitzchak? Yitzchak's life is severe. Yitzchak's life is traumatic. Yitzchak's life is the life of the potential addict who sees this world and says that I don't trust anything here. And the Chadish says something incredible. He says, Ela Yitzchak avinu ala that Yitzchak lived in this world only apparently. That he only operated according to the strictures and the conditions of this world on a physical level. But on a spiritual level, Yitzchak abided with the deep sense that I am nothing. That I am not in control of anything. That the substantiality that I try and force out of this world is simply my attempt to gain control over things. And that if I want to be happy, I must relinquish my control to that which is beyond me, to a power greater than myself. And the Chidush continues and he says, And in truth, So we find the paradox by Yitzchak Avinu. On the one hand, Yitzchak Avinu lives in this world. On the other hand, Yitzchak Avinu is killed by the Akedah, like Chazal tell us. So we have a paradox. On the one hand, he's dead and not alive. On the other hand, he's alive and walking amongst us. So how do you shtim, how do you unite this paradox of terms? And the Chedush Arim, echoing the Bergsonian notion of humor based on the incongruity theory, which sees things being opposite to one another and thereby giving birth to laughter, it's specifically Yitzchak Avinu who's able to live with this paradox of Kate's chai, of being alive and being dead at the same moment 
of being present and not being present at the same moment, of living in this world and feeling the pain of this world, but at the same point being able to recognize that the pain of this world is simply a maris ayin, is simply an epistemological fallacy which tells us that we live within this sense that we have control over anything. And it's only when we're able to relinquish control it's only when we're able to accept life on life's terms, to recognize that when I get in the way of myself, when I, when I try and control the terms of my existence, that's where I find discomfort. That's where I fight against the Yishavadas. It's only when I feel that my Rashkara is one thing and happiness is the other thing and that they're two opposites that I have no ability to find joy. But when I'm mevatel myself, when I nullify myself and I realize that negativity and positivity, light and darkness, are two expressions of the same infinite light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I allow myself to be mevatel and, and live with the humility of recognizing that I am simply a vessel that receives the light of God in this world, that's where I'm going to have the possibility of finding joy. Specifically there will I be able to find schayk. Specifically from within the Marashchayra. And with this, we can return back to what Rabbi Nachman was trying to tell us. That, I'm going to tell you how once upon a time they were joyous out of Marishchaira. How a person was capable of finding joy and satisfaction from within the brokenness of this world. Because it's specifically when we accept our conditions of being orphans in a forest. It's specifically when we're able to look at the beggars of the world those people who based on our preconceived notions of existence and epistemological education feel that those people have nothing to offer me, is specifically when I'm able to gaze at the conditions of those broken individuals, of the Balchuva, of the Neshama of Kayin, of the student of Shammai, of Rabbi Lezer ben Dudai, who Rabbi Yudanafsi was capable of recognizing as a teacher because he's taught me that the Balchuva can change their circumstances from one moment to the next infinitely, it's specifically there that I will be able to find happiness and be mezaveg zvugim and create yechudim and find connections for my life. And what we're going to end with is the statement at the end of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 417, written from an original member of the founding fathers of Alcoholics Anonymous. He says as follows, Acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity, no peace of mind until I accept that person, place, thing or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism or my addiction, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And again, to emphasize the point here, unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. Yitzchak Avinu was not trying to force God's hand in the world. Yitzchak Avinu was trying to find redemption within his conditionality itself, within judgments, within harshness, within brokenness, to find schoik there, to be able to laugh at the world like the beggars that Rabbi Nachman speaks about, like the orphans lost in the dark forest without meaning, who are capable of finding meaning because of the teachings that they've received from the Tzabrachana Yidin of the world. It's specifically those individuals who are capable of taking the Marashchaira, of taking that broken conditionality of lack 
and chisaron and finding simcha in it. And with this, the tefillah, the birch hasedios, is that each and every individual who finds themselves being spoken to in the shirim should be able to accept themselves, should be able to accept themselves unconditionally, and should have the capacity to find joy specifically where they are at that moment, ka'asher husham, to recognize that it's specifically in the acceptance of my limitations that I have the capacity to transcend my limitations. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page, and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.